Well, again, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. And I will again read uh, the first 17 verses, though our focus is going to be on the first seven for this morning. So Paul's letter to the Romans, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. That I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, if you recall last week, we looked at the book of Romans, we looked a little bit at the background and the introduction, uh, noting that it was indeed Paul who wrote this book, noting that he did indeed write it to a church or a group of churches in or around the city of Rome. And we noted also that you could see the purpose statement or the theme verse or the, the reason why he's writing this letter in verses 16 and 17 is to proclaim the gospel. He is not ashamed of the gospel because it contains power. It contains the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And it is for all people, the Jew and the Greek. And the reason why he is so keen to, uh, to pronounce this gospel is because the gospel itself contains the righteousness of Christ it is, as it is being revealed from faith to faith. And we see that righteousness revealed both in the salvation of sinners and also in the judgment of the wicked. And then we looked at the first two verses uh, yesterday, or uh, sorry, last week, not yesterday. Uh, we looked at the first two verses. We saw how Paul uh, introduces himself. He doesn't give a testimony of his life. He doesn't tell you how he came to faith, but he does tell you three very important things about himself, that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And we looked at that, how he sees himself now as a slave to Christ. He is now a worker in Christ's army. He is a member of Christ's family. He is a member of the family of God, and it is his specific task to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he is also one who is called to be an apostle. So he was 
given a divine summons to serve as in this role as an apostle. And we saw that an apostle has a special meaning to it. It just it, it means a messenger, but it also has a special meaning in, as it refers to Paul, as it refers to the other disciples whom Jesus had with him, his band of 12. Um, these apostles were empowered to uh, sort of preach the gospel, to spread the kingdom. They were Christ's special representatives and part of the, the group that were foundational to the church. As we read in Ephesians 2.20, where it says that the church of Jesus Christ is founded on the foundation of the apostles and Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And that thirdly, that he was separated for the gospel of God, that he was taken apart. He was set aside for the specific purpose to preach the gospel. And then in verse 2, we also saw how that gospel was proclaimed and promised beforehand through the prophets. And we looked at several uh, prophecies. There were others we could have looked at, but we looked at four verses in particular that outlined how uh, Jesus Christ was promised beforehand in the scriptures, how he was the promised Messiah, how he was the promised uh, uh, king, the, fir- the future king in David's line. And then we got up to verse 3, and that's where we're going to pick up here, where we're going to see in verses 3 and 4, these are very important verses, even though they occur real early in the epistles, and we sometimes kind of gloss over this because we want to kind of get to the meat of the letter. Uh, but these are very important verses here, verses 3 and 4, where it says, concerning his son, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's in the beginning. It's in the middle of a sentence. Verse three begins in the middle of a sentence. And that concerning his son, Jesus Christ points us back to the gospel it is this, this promise. So, you know, he's. Paul was called to be a servant or separated to the gospel of God, that gospel which was promised beforehand, and that gospel now which concerns his son. So the gospel has as its subject matter Jesus Christ. He is the center of the gospel. It is about him. Now some people think that the gospel is a message of salvation. It is a message of salvation, but it's not just a message of salvation divorced from the content which is Jesus Christ. He is the pearl of great price. He is the, uh, the treasure of great worth that we give everything to gain and possess. So it is about him. It is about his life. It is about his death. And it is about his resurrection. Which is why when we have these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of Jesus Christ. Now they tell it from different perspectives, But it's all about Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to know when you look at the Gospels, someone said that the Gospels are really passion narratives with a prolonged introduction, which may be a little bit reductionistic. But in a sense, it's kind of true because all of them really focus on that last final week of his life. Many, many chapters are devoted to that final week. I mean, if you're looking at how much time of Jesus' life is devoted to the content in these Gospels, that final week takes up a a chunk of each of those Gospels because it is very important, the the idea of Jesus going to the cross, going to sacrifice himself, going willingly to sacrifice himself, and how that sacrifice was an atonement for our sins. 
also here we see that verses 3 and 4 in a way can you could say are said to summarize uh, the gospel. It talks about how he came, uh, was born according to the seed of David and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit by the resurrection of the dead. And there you really kind of have in a nutshell sort of like the bookends of Jesus' ministry. He came in the flesh. He was born of the seed of the, uh, of the woman. He was born... Uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then he was raised and ascended to God on high at his resurrection. And, of course, there's everything in between as well. Now, the gospel of God, of course, here is concerning his son. And that notion of son, obviously we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's, that's all throughout the scripture. It's all throughout the gospels, particularly the gospel of John really focuses on on Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but that idea of sonship, it really does focus on the unique, uh, uniquely intimate relationship that, that the Son has with the Father. And if you will, keep your finger in Romans and just flip over to John chapter 1. Lord willing... Um, Probably in about five or six weeks, we're going to start uh, preaching through uh, the book of John. So I'm kind of giving away a little bit here <laughs> ahead of time, but uh, it, it'll be good to be reminded anyway. Um, but look at verse 18, if you will. Now, this, these first 18 verses in John chapter 1 serve as, oftentimes they call it a prologue. And it sort of introduces a lot of the subject matter that John is going to cover in his gospel. And here in verse 18, it says, no one has seen God at any time. And we, okay, right, God is invisible. No one can see him. Uh, In fact, if we were to see the fullness of God's majesty, his holiness would would consume us. That's that's the, the idea there. No one has seen God at any time. However, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. So again, this idea of who is in the bosom of the Father, you have this notion of a relationship, the Father and the Son intimately related with one another. And and then it says the Son has declared him. That word declared is the word that we get, we use in English, we use exegete or exegesis, which is the, the practice of explaining from the text of scripture its meaning we exegete the scriptures we don't read into it but we read out of it so we read the scriptures and we explain what it means and that's what jesus does he exegetes the father for us he describes the father for us and that's why when he says later on in john's gospel when he's you know he says to philip philip asks him show us the father and it'll be fine enough for us and jesus says have you not you know Have you been with me long enough to know that if you have seen me, you've seen the Father? In the other words, if you recognize who Christ is, if you recognize the special relationship that he has with the Father, you know that he reflects the glory of the Father in the Son. You could turn back to Romans 1. So this, this idea of sonship is this idea that he has a uniquely intimate relationship to God. And this gospel then is one of Jesus Christ. And, and here, what does Paul tell us then about Jesus Christ? And we kind of looked at it already. We see that he is descended from...
from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And here you see, now Paul, in Paul's writings, part of how to understand Paul's writings is to understand the sort of dichotomies that he uses, the, the, the contrasts that he uses. And one of these main contrasts here is this notion of flesh and spirit. He uses this quite a bit. He'll use this a lot throughout the book of Romans. And this idea here of flesh and spirit, it talks about what is of this age and what is of the age to come. And that's another important concept to understand Paul's writings. He, we, uh, theologians often refer to it as sort of Paul's two-age theology or his two-age way of looking at things. So you've got uh, this age, which encompasses everything that we see in the here and now, and the age to come, which is what will occur when Christ returns. He will bring the fullness of the age to come to the, to, the, uh, to the earth. So when Christ returns it, at the end of time, at the end of uh, this age, he will bring the new heavens and the new earth. They will come down and they will sort of replace the old heavens and the old earth because they are passing away. So you've got this two-age model or two-age paradigm. And this is the way the Jews often reflected their thinking in, their, uh, in the prophets. Old Testament prophets talked about the age to come. The age to come. And it was always a future... Uh, way of looking at things to talk about, well, that's, you know, you see all these promises in like Isaiah or Ezekiel and things like that. And they always talk about how everything will live in peace. You know, in Isaiah talks about how the lion will lie down with the lamb, how, you know, babies will, you know, live to hundreds of years old. And if someone dies at a hundred, he dies as a child and, and, you know, people will lay down, you know, their swords will become plowshares and things like this, this era of peace, this era of sort of the messianic kingdom coming to its fullness, that's the age to come. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is sort of the link between this age and the age to come. And with his resurrection and power by the Holy Spirit, you're going to see, in a sense, an overlapping of this age and the age to come, which is why we talk often about the already and the not yet. So there are often, we have a lot of the blessings that are in the age to come. We experience to some degree already. You see this in Ephesians 1 where Paul talks about how we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ now. Well, I mean, I look around, I don't feel like I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ right now, but spiritually, by our union with Christ, we are there because he is our head. Christ is the head of the church. We are the body of Christ. Our head is in heaven. Our head is at the right hand of God. So in a sense, we are already there. But then there, that fullness will come when all of it is manifested at the return of Christ. So this idea of flesh and spirit, this age, age to come. And then another dichotomy you see here is son of David, son of God. Uh, you see in these verses, this, these comparisons of Jesus Christ. Now we looked last week, uh, we looked at how uh, some of these Old Testament prophecies foretell of a future son of David who will unite God's people and rule them forever. Uh, just to refresh your memory, the ones that we did look at were 2 Samuel 7. That's the Davidic covenant. That's where God, through the prophet Nathan, promises to David that he will have, uh, he will never lack for a son to sit on his throne. 
Now, again, if you know the Old Testament history, the history of the Israelites, there was a point where they did lack a son to sit on the throne. I mean, the kingdoms were conquered. They were conquered by Assyria, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom was conquered by, Bab- uh, by the Babylonians. And there was a break of many, many years where there was no Davidic king. But the fulfillment of that is not in a human king. We know that. The fulfillment of that is in Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. We looked at Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. We looked at Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. And Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24. All of them promising about how a future shepherd will come, how a future son of David will come to unite God's people under one shepherd, under one king. So the gospel then concerns how Jesus is descended from, the, uh, from David according to the flesh. In other words, he is in that line. He is in the line of David. He is the son of David. And that's why you see in Matthew, you see the genealogy of, of Jesus. Uh, Matthew is very concerned to show Jesus' uh, lineage, his sort of bona fides, if you will, shows how he is both the son of Abraham and the son of David. And then Luke also shows that as well in his genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Now, in verse 3, though, we also see that it is the eternal Son of God. So we don't want to understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, came into being when he was born of the seed of David. The Son of God has always preexisted. The Son of God is eternal. That's, you know, Paul assumes that when he says this is... This gospel is concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David. So in other words, what Paul is saying there is that the eternal Son of God broke into history. He came into this world. He assumed human flesh. Again, going back to John's gospel, you don't have to turn there, but verse 14, that very important verse in chapter 1 talks about how you know, the entire chapter talks about how the eternal word existed, was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him. In him was light and that light was the life of men. And then later on in verse 14, it says, then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that eternal word came into history, became flesh. And that word dwelled is tabernacled. He, he tented with us just like in the, in, in the ancient uh, Israelite religion, you had the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which was to represent God's presence among his people. That was what Jesus was. He was God's presence among his people. He was Emmanuel, which is what that means. God with us, which is a great name for a church, by the way. Emmanuel, God with us. So in verse 3, when it says that he was born of the seed of David, he entered into this age. So the eternal son of God broke into this age and brings a little bit of the age to come with him. He took on flesh and he became the son of David in fulfillment of all of these scriptures. So the gospel of the good news is that the the, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come in the form of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is here. He is in the flesh. Now, it's also interesting to note that Paul, in his writings, often doesn't talk about the life of Christ. He often talks about the meaning of Christ's resurrection and things like that. But he doesn't 
talk about his teachings. He doesn't talk about his miracles. He doesn't talk about what Jesus did in his life. That's why we have four Gospels. Paul is explaining the meaning of all that. That's what the epistles do. That's what most of Paul's letters do, is they explain the meaning of what it means to us now that this eternal Son of God came into flesh, dwelt among us, lived a life, died for our sins, and ascended into heaven. Now here what is important for Paul is that Jesus came, it says, according to the flesh or after the flesh. Again, it's clear from Paul that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was eternal, and that this person was born in the fullness of time. That's what he says in Galatians 4, that Jesus Christ was born of the woman in the fullness of time. In, the, in other words, meaning that that idea of fullness of time means that this is the time. The time is now ripe. Everything that needs to occur to, to usher in the Messiah has occurred. And it is now time for this Messiah to break forth into history. But it equally clear is that Jesus' advent, his coming, took place in the flesh. And what that means, it's not just that he assumed a human body. That, it, it means that. It means that he did assume a human body. But more than that, what it means is that Jesus took on our mode of existence. Our way of living is a fleshly way of living. He, took, he entered into this present age. He lived, in a, he lived a fleshly existence. And this, this word flesh here, in Greek, the word is sarx, if you care about that. But the, the word is sarx. And it doesn't just mean he took on a physical body. It does mean that. But rather, it speaks of the fact that, uh, uh, that of this world, this present age, the flesh is weak. The flesh is corrupt. The flesh is subject to death and decay. The flesh is subject to time. The flesh is merely human. It's frail. That's what it means when it says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came according, uh, the son, he was the Son of David according to the flesh. He assumed our weak, frail uh, human existence. He took that form on. That's what he says in Philippians 2, right? In Philippians 2, it says that he who was of the form of God took on the form of a servant. He became as a man. So the one who was equal to, <clears throat> equal to God, the one who, was, who did not count it <clears throat> as something to be grasped, that, that he was equal with God, took on a human form. He came into the flesh. Again, now keep your finger here. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to look at verse 47, but I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from verse 35 through 49 with a special attention to verse 47. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, Paul writes, But some will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. <clears throat> but God gives it a body as he pleases, and each seed to its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. 
There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So what Paul is talking there, this is his chapter on the resurrection. And here he's talking about, well, the first part of the chapter, he deals with people who have denied the resurrection. He says, well, how can you deny the resurrection if you acknowledge the resurrection of Christ? If Christ is resurrected, we too will be resurrected as well. And then he goes on and now like, so well, what kind of body? You know, so he, again, he's using this, if you remember from last week, He's using this, this method called the diatribe. So he's, he proposes a truth, and then he sort of asks a question that might come up from something that he's taught, and then he anticipates that question and then seeks to answer it. So here he is posing a question that some imaginary person might say, well, what kind of body will we be raised in, right? I mean, we're, we're, we, we die in this kind of fleshly body, so what kind of body? And he's like, well, it's not going to be the same body. And he goes into this long extended thing about grain, and I'm sure you know many of the farmers here know it's like when you plant corn, it doesn't look like a corn on the cob, right? <laughs> you plant a seed, and then it grows into corn on the cob. If you plant something else, it grows into that. That's what he's talking about there. You plant these different seeds, you put them in the earth, and then what they become is whatever it is that they are to become. But it's not what you put into the ground that grows. It's something else, right? <clears throat> and then he says the same thing with the body. This body that we're in, this flesh, this sarks, is a natural body. It is subject to decay, it is subject to time, it is subject to, to all kinds of things that are in this age. And he says this body is sown in dishonor, but the body that we will have when we are resurrected is raised <coughs> in glory. It is sown natural, it is raised as a spiritual body. Not like in material, but a body that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and that functions according to the Holy Spirit. It is, uh, it is, it is a, you know, it is sown in weakness and corruption. It is raised in incorruption. That's what he's talking about here. So Christ comes in the form of flesh. He comes in this weak, corrupt, and and natural body. That's he breaks into this age in that way. You can go back to Romans again. So Christ came in the weak, transitory human state, without, sh- however, without sharing the sin that we're all born in, right? We are born in sin, but we are born in sin, as, as our confessions will say, by natural generation, so through natural birth. I, you know, I don't know the exact specifics of how sin is transmitted, but it is transmitted through natural generation. However, that is why Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the woman. He sort of bypassed that natural way of 
coming into the world that we all do. And it says he humbled himself and subjected himself to this fleshly, weak existence. And then we know that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is then a major turning point in history. Everything then uh, sort of turns on that hinge, if you will, the resurrection. And again, that's what verses 3 and 4 here are trying to get across in Romans 1. That is the resurrection of Christ that is the major turning point in history. With the resurrection of Christ, the first man, he is now the first man to enter into the age to come. He, is, he entered this age through birth. He entered this age according to the seed of David, according to the flesh. And then he is resurrected by his resurrection. Then he goes into the age to come. And then what it means, and like we said earlier, then that Christ as head of the church is now in glory. He is now in the age to come, which is the promise that we too who believe in Christ will also follow him. Again, you know, using a, an agricultural term, he talks about Christ being the first fruits. So as you plant a crop in those days, the first fruits were the first ones to come up. And those are the ones that you offer to God on the, on the idea that God would bless the rest of the harvest. But you offered the first fruits of your harvest to God. You offered the best parts. You don't wait until the rest of the harvest comes in and kind of give them the leftover, you know, the, the stuff that you would toss away or whatever and keep the good stuff for yourself. You, you trust God to give you the rest. That's the idea. But Christ is our first fruits. He is, and he is the first fruits of a glorious end time harvest of souls that will come when he returns again. <clears throat> so then as he is resurrected in power, he has ceased then living according to the flesh and is now living in power according to the spirit. And then uh, looking a little more closely at verse 4, you see, you know, we talked about this contrast or dichotomy between flesh and spirit. It is not here, Paul does, again, Paul is not using this to, to uh, talk or describe about two ways of human existence. You know, we talk about human beings, we are body and soul. So you could say we're flesh and spirit in a sense. And that's true, but that's not what Paul is getting at here. You know, again, we're talking about this idea of age, you know, the current age, this age and age to come or weakness and power. That's that's how we're talking about here. And that's why in verses three and four, this little phrase may not seem important, but it's used twice. He says, according to according to the flesh, according to the spirit of holiness, that according to is very, very important. Again, he is describing Two modes of existence, not two components of our existence, the flesh and the spirit. He is or or he's not meaning here that, you know, talking about Jesus, human nature and Jesus, divine nature. Again, these are truths that we believe and that we espouse. But what Paul is saying here, he is describing two modes of existence, a fleshly mode of existence and a spiritual mode of existence. Again, the flesh is weak, but the spirit has power. The flesh is corruptible. The spirit is incorruptible. The flesh is subject to time. It is temporal. The spirit is eternal. is an eternal body. Our flesh is an old fallen creation. And in the spirit, it is a new creation. One of my favorite verses is Paul's verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where he says, 
that we are new creations in Christ. And, and, and that is just such a beautiful verse because it really truly describes what we are in Christ. Yes, this fleshly body will decay and die, but then we'll have that glorious body, that new creation. Our spirit is already transformed, and then our flesh will follow. And of course, the life according to the flesh is life according to this age, and the life according to the spirit is in the age to come. And the point I'm trying to get across here then is that this contrast then between flesh and spirit is a redemptive historical contrast in nature. It talks about the flow of redemption in history, how everything is this age and then eventually flows into the age to come. That is the progression of history as the Bible sees it. It sees this age is fallen in Genesis 3, and then it will eventually come into the age to come in Revelation 21 and 22 when the king comes and everything is made new. But you get this phrase here in verse 4, again, declared to be the Son of God with power. Now, it can be kind of confusing, this phrase, um, because it may lead one to think that somehow Jesus wasn't the Son of God until his resurrection. Okay, so he had his resurrection, then he was declared to be the Son of God. Um, you know, you would say, well, wasn't he the Son of God always? And didn't you say that he was eternally the Son of God like about 15 minutes ago? Yes, I did. I did say he was eternally the Son of God 15 minutes ago. And I'm not trying to contradict myself. And I don't think Paul's trying to contradict himself either. It was, in fact, the Son of God who assumed the human flesh in the first place. What we get here, some people have taken to uh, support a heretical view called adoptionism. And if you don't know what adoptionism is, basically is the belief that Jesus was a man who then became divine. He then became the Son of God. Now, most adoptionists will say that happened at his baptism. So, you know, up until the point of his baptism, you had this normal human being, Jesus, who, you know, was just like every one of us. And then he comes to his baptism. And then when John the Baptist baptizes him in the Jordan River... Then you've got, you know, the skies open up, the voice of the Lord is, is declared, and the Spirit comes down as if in the form of a dove and descends upon Christ. And then the voice of the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So the adoptionists will say, well, that's when Jesus became the Son of God. And then there are some who will take and read this verse and say, well, no, he was a man all the way up to his death, but then because he was such an exceptional man, then, you know, God raised him from the dead. And then at that point, he became the son of God, because that's what Paul says. He became the son of God in power. He was declared the son of God in power. So it seems like Paul is saying this. But here, this, this word declaration should really be seen sort of as in the sense of a coronation, in the sense of a king being crowned. Okay, he was always the king, and now he is the king in fullness. He has been crowned. Again, now, if you will please uh, turn, keep your, again, keep your finger in, in Romans 1, turn to Psalm 2. But in Psalm 2, it's a great psalm, by the way, we read, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's 
Christ, saying, or Messiah, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them with his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is a coronation psalm. This is a psalm that is used by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1. You can go back to Romans, but in Hebrews 1, you don't necessarily have to turn there. Uh, But in Hebrews 1, verse 2, um, in in verse 1, chapter 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. And then later on, in verse 5 there, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That's citing uh, Psalm 2, verse 7 that we just read. So this idea of being declared Son of God is, in the sense, God is saying now, now that Christ has been resurrected, now he's been ascended, he is now being declared the Messianic King. He is now coming into his kingdom. And that's what we say. When he is at the right hand of God the Father, he is now king. He is now reigning over his kingdom. His kingdom now is going forth as the church grows, as as the gospel is proclaimed throughout all the world. The kingdom grows. Subjects are brought in from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Christ. And Christ already is sitting enthroned at the right hand of God. So Jesus then, the God-man, man and God, at his resurrection was elevated to the right hand of God and he was openly declared to be the Messianic King or the Son of God. That's what the Son of God essentially refers to and that's how Paul is using it. He's using it in a sense that indicates that Jesus is the Messianic King, the one promised in the scriptures and the one to whom God has specifically anointed this task. And upon his resurrection then from the dead, uh, then he, is, he enters, as we said earlier, he enters into the age to come. Then finally in verse 4, it is important to note uh, that this declaration that Jesus is the Son of God is one that is made in power according to the spirit of holiness. Again, in power, as we said, is in contrast to his fleshly existence, which was uh, weak and, and uh, frail. He is now resurrected in a powerful, glorious body. And then this idea, according to the spirit, again, we said it's not like he's got a, an invisible, immaterial body, but it is, a, it is a body that is governed and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, living according to the spirit. So this isn't a transition then from human Messiah to Son of God, but a 
but from son, uh, the Son of God as Messiah to the Son of God now as Messiah and reigning King. Okay, and I think we're at time. So we'll stop here. Uh, but I did get through verses 3 and 4 like I hoped. <laughs> and then... Uh, Probably next week, it's not going to take as long to go through 5, 6, and 7. So we'll start looking at verses 8 through 15 as well. I don't know how far I'll get in that, but um, we'll certainly finish this section and start the next section.